Oh, yes. Who's there for Brangan? What does that mean? You weren't there for the whole thing. So you don't want to testify as to the quality of the Febrengan. Yes. That's exactly what that face was. Ah. It was good. It was really good. Well, I'm getting better. Is that your Febrengan for us? Mm-hmm. And you put there. Where's their kasha? What? Where's their kasha? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe it. Why did you tell us that before? You want me to do all the work for you? What did he say? There was no kasha. I knew something was off. All right. That's what it was, but <laughs> is that without their prayer prison? Supposed to. My dad. One second. Um, is that a problem? Okay. I mean, you might go to hell for it, but it's <laughs> not a problem. Okay. And you probably won't. Go. All right. One second. What do we also have to know for Hanukkah? We don't have to ask us how our Hanukkah was. <laughs> what do you have to know for Hanukkah? Um, it's really important to make sure that you do the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles. Properly. Yes. Yes. Um, that's really important. What else? And fried food and dairy food. You say hollow? Say hollow. Fried food and dairy food. You don't have to fry the dairy. You say whole hollow or half dairy food and fried What? Whole hollow. Eight days of hollow. Okay. <sighs> Okay, now we're going to talk about fear. Okay. We did speak about love. No, we're done. We're done with love. We're moving on. That's right. Ready to move on to fear. Okay. Wow's fear. We are on page, in my book, it's page 13. In the red one, it's 15 or 14. Okay. While fear is the root of the 365 prohibitive commands, fearing to rebel against the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, or is there a deeper fear than this when he feels ashamed in the presence of the divine greatness to rebel against his glory and to do what is evil in his eyes? So there you go, fear. Fear is about the, the 365 negative commandments are rooted in fear. Okay. Now, I just wanna just stop first and let's read for a second this again. And, add, and I want, I'm gonna read a little bit slower and, and tell me if the sentence makes sense. While awe is the root of the 365 prohibitive commands, awing to rebel against the supreme king of kings, the Holy One, blessed be he, or still a deeper awe than this, when he feels ashamed in the presence of the divine greatness. Does that make sense? When I say awe instead of fear? No. <laughs> Not really. Okay. So I guess we have to first come to the um, acceptance that when it says fear, it actually means fear. Fear. Right. Okay. Right. I know that like that like ruins like a bunch of like wonderful lessons that you've had about how it's awe of God instead of it fear of God. Ruin them. Doesn't ruin them. Ah, very good. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to first talk about fear, generally speaking. There is something called fear of punishment, fear of punishment. 
Does anyone know which chapter in Tanya the Alter Rebbe addresses fear of punishment? No, anyone know? There's 53 chapters, so, you know. 27. No. Nope. One more guess. Which chapter does the Alter Rebbe address fear of punishment? None. None. He does not talk about fear of punishment anywhere in Tanya. At all. Okay. What? It's not our approach. It's not our approach, right. Well, us Lubavitchers, we don't believe in reward and punishment. No. We do. <laughs> what do we do? It's one of the like, beliefs. It is one of the beliefs. Okay. Okay. So here's the thing. Fear of punishment. Fear of punishment is not mentioned in Hasidus almost ever. There are a few places, maybe five, that I know of. Maybe, yeah, something like that, where fear of punishment is mentioned. Okay. Um, and it's important that we understand why fear of punishment is not mentioned before we go on to talk about the fears over here. Okay. In Hasidus, we divide everything in the world into two categories, what's called Kedusha, holiness, and Sitra Achra, the other side. Why is it called the other side? Now they're going to waste their words giving it a name. It's not holiness, so it's just the other side. Okay? Also known as the klipa, the shell, because it covers over godliness. So either it's holy or it's sitra achra. Okay? From the perspective of chasidis, kedusha is good and klipa is? So that means everything is either good or? Is there a neutral? No. No neutral. Okay. This is hard for people to accept, but there's no neutral. Okay. It's not neutral. But it could be elevator or not. That's yeah, not neutral. Well, before it's elevator thing, it's neutral. No, it's bad. Right away when it's, oh, it's You might be able to do something with it, right? It's like the person who died, um, they're dead. So regular but there could be the resurrection of the dead, in which case they won't the be dead. Regular food without a bad? Regular food with a bracha is bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, regular food without, you have know, the sides for the attention of, like, energy for the whatever. Um, is it bad? Yeah. But I need it. I know. Isn't so life, I need bad. Is it, yeah. Isn't, isn't life complicated? Yes. Okay, now, that's important that you discover that sometimes you need things that are bad. Okay, now, we break, so let's first just quickly understand, what is the, what is the difference? If I were going to, like, make a little Kedusha, um, Thing that measured Kedusha, like was like a little went off whenever Kedusha was around. What would it be sensing? What do you mean? Like a little sensor, like it goes around like beep, 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 and it would sense Kedusha. Like what would it be picking up on? When you say something is holy. What? A holy book. Yeah, but, but what in the book makes it holy? The godliness. The godliness. The godliness in everything. What? There's godliness and everything. So that doesn't make it holy. It's known as You see, I, I, I keep not ignoring your use of Hebrew, <laughs> he, of Hebrew words. If you want to say it in English, something in English. That's why I wasn't answering. Anything that makes room for God and like, allows God in. Anything that allows God in. That's good. Okay, right? So something that allows God in, right? God is everywhere, but the question is, is God there by default? God there by force, or is God there because God is being allowed to be there, being invited in? So that which allows God to be present 
that's holy. And that which God is there um, for some other reason, because he happens to be everywhere, that's not holy. Okay, so now, let's just go back and talk about love of Hashem for a moment. Is love for Hashem holy? If I love Hashem, is that holy? No, not necessarily. No, no that's right, not necessarily. Oh. What would make my love for Hashem holy? If it's real. Explain. If Very good. Right? If I if love of Hashem means I enjoy having the the spiritual elevated experience of being connected to spiritual stuff, is that holy? No. No. Because right, remember that class we went through different kinds of love? There's love where it's all about your just subjective experience. It's not like connecting you to anybody else. So if a person want, if a person is if what a person loves about loving Hashem is the experience of loving Hashem, then there's nothing holy about that, right? Okay. So what makes something holy is that it admit, right it allows it makes space for Hashem. It can be more holy, it can be less holy. Okay. Klipa, on the other hand, doesn't make space for Hashem. Hashem is there, but not because the klipa lets it be, it be there. Good. Okay. That's the sitrachah. Now. We divide the Sitra Akhra, the Klipa, into two kinds. Okay? okay? One, was already mentioned, it's called Klipas Noga. Doesn't really matter what Klipas Noga means, but that's what it's called. And the other one is called the three impure, completely impure Klipas, Shlesha Klipas of Timaeus. Don't ask me why they're three. We'll just get the side shot. Okay? So we've got these two kinds. Here's the, here's the thing. The three impure klipas, the shlesha klipas tameas, they are anti-godliness. Okay. The klipas noga is not anti-god. Now, if I'm not opposed to you, I'm not your enemy, does that automatically mean that we're friends? No. No. Could we actually have conflicts of interests? What's good for you is not good for me? Not because I'm your enemy, it just happens to be that way, right? There's only, like, I don't know, there's one, there's only one milkshake left, and I want it, and you want it, and there's no more milkshakes. So, like, if you get it, then I don't get it, and so now we have a problem. Not because I hate you, not because I dislike you, not because I want you to suffer, but, like, if you take the milkshake, then I won't have, and, you know, I'm obviously more important because I'm me, and you're not me, so therefore I should get the milkshake, and you shouldn't, right? That's not because I'm your enemy, right? Make sense? Okay. And it's also possible that our interests could align, right? For instance, I have a milkshake and don't really want to drink it, and you have money and want to drink a milkshake, and I would like some money, right? I'm not your friend. You're not my friend. I don't really care much about you. You don't care much about me. But it happens to be that if you give me the money in exchange for the milkshake, we both get what we would like. So right? it's called win-win. Okay, so again, you have where it's all about the connection, it's all about making space for Hashem, that's Kedusha. Then you have what's anti-Hashem, but wherever Hashem is, you want to go away from there, you don't want to allow Hashem in, it's all antithetical to godliness. But then you have this other thing, which is called Klipas Noga. Klipas Noga means that I am not making space for Hashem in my life. I'm not anti-Hashem. I'm just looking out for who? Myself. Myself. It could be that my interests align with Hashem's interests, in which case, you know, it's not so bad, right? It could be my interests contradict his, in which case, you know, we're going to have a problem. 
But it's not really about him at all. It's just about me. So I'm not for him. I'm not against him. I'm just, it's all about me. So that's Klippa Snog. Make sense? Okay. Now. That's where we're getting. That's where we're going. So now. Let's pretend now that God is a person, okay? And you decide that you, you know, shouldn't do things that someone else doesn't like because that other person can hurt you, right? That could happen, right? Right. Okay. Does that make you feel closer to that person? No. No. What if you do things because the, the other person wants, um, because they're bribing you? Does that make you feel closer to the person? No. Right? If I come and say, you know, would you mind helping me with the trash? And I'll pay you. But if you don't help me, I'll burn your house down. So now you're like, well, I mean, I guess, you know, helping is pretty good, right? Rabbi Kaufman's a sociopath, so I guess I better, like, play along, right? Okay, so now, what do you say about somebody who's like, you know, I keep mitzvahs. And you're like, well, why do you keep mitzvahs? Well, you know, because if you don't keep mitzvahs, you burn in Gehenna. And uh, if you do keep mitzvahs, you get to go to Gan Eden. So, you know, assuming you believe that stuff is real, that it seems like a, a, a good... Um, you know, a good decision, right? Probably not a good idea to get on the bad side of the creator of the universe, right? And if he's willing to bribe you with all sorts of goodies in the afterlife for playing by his crazy rules, you know, it's not the end of the world, right? Okay. But now with a person, you wouldn't really feel close to a person who treated you like that, would you? So then somebody who's doing Torah mitzvahs out of that kind of motivation, do you think that they're coming any closer to Hashem? No. And so therefore... I mean, by default, they are doing that. Why? Doing the answers don't make you closer to Hashem. Right, but it's still... It's the last time it's still Hashem connecting to you. That's true. But they, as a person, are not coming any closer right, to Hashem. I don't feel like they're still oh. oh. Okay, so now... As far as Chassidus is concerned, therefore, fear of punishment or a desire for reward is klipa. And doesn't make you any closer to Hashem. Now... What's worse than Klippas Noga? Yeah, the three impure Klippas Shosh Klippas Tamez. They're anti-God. So now, what's better? To, n- to not do an Avera because you're afraid Hashem's going to punish you or to do the Avera. Those are your options. You're not, I'm going to not do the Avera. I'm not going to say drive on Shabbos because I'm afraid of going to hell. Or the other option is I'm going to drive on Shabbos, which is worse. Driving on Shabbos is far worse. Okay. Now, what if I'm in such a state that the only thing that's going to stop me from driving on Shabbos is the fear of Gehenna? You're fine. What? You're fine. Then I'm fine? Wait, sorry. The only thing stopping me from driving on Shabbos is the fear of Gehenna. Yeah, first we're going to... Well, in regards to closeness, it's nothing, but I'm saying in regards to... It's not great. It's really not great. It's really not great, right? It's Klippa Snoga. It's Klippa Snoga, right? It's not good. But 
it's better than sinning, right? Okay. So, from the perspective of chassidus, it's all about cultivating a relationship with Hashem. Fear of punishment really doesn't belong. The only time fear of punishment would be would, would be acceptable is if that's your last resort to get you to stop sinning. But even then, it's not really building a relationship with Hashem. And it's not making you any closer. And in fact, Chassidus says, the Magad of Azrich said in, 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 to the Altar Rebbe, it, it's, it's worse because once a person inculcates in themselves a fear of punishment, they lose any desire to come closer to Hashem. So it's like not only did you, is the fear of punishment itself not holy, which is bad, on top of that, it makes it harder to then to move into holiness because the person now has a negative view of Hashem. The maggot said this. The altar. So fear of punishment, not only is it not like, a, it's not just like it's a baby step or a basic step. It's actually counterproductive. Okay. Now, sometimes something which is counterproductive might be necessary because although you've, you, 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 you're able to prevent something far worse, right? You might need something that's really negative. Right? Think of a very serious example. Amputation is a bad thing. We can all agree on that. But if that's necessary to save the person's life, well, then that's what we do, right? Divorce is a bad thing, but, you know, sometimes that's the lesser of the two evils, right? Sometimes being afraid of Hashem's punishment okay, is the lesser of two evils, but it's just that. It is the lesser of two evils, and it carries a very heavy price that a life built around fear of punishment makes it unimpossible, but extremely difficult to then decide and to then grow into a relationship with Hashem. So Chassidus, which is all about Rosh Hashem, doesn't talk about it at all, other than to tell you a few places why it doesn't talk about it, or why it's sometimes necessary. So for a Chassid, fear of punishment is like, um, it's like, um, what is that spray they have? Uh, the pepper spray? Okay, now, what, what's the purpose of having pepper spray? Why you want to burn someone's eyes? Because they're coming to attack you. Now, let me ask you a question. It says, you know, I'm, I live a very safe life, right? And you say, well, how do, like, well, what way is your life very safe? Like, what decisions do you make? It's like, I carry pepper spray everywhere I go. No. I mean, if that's your, that's like your first line of defense is pepper spray. Like, pepper spray is good if you're already in what kind of situation? I'm sorry. It has to be a pretty unsafe situation to warrant pepper sprays being, being a viable you know, the way of dealing with it, right? I mean, there's got to be somebody who's threatening you, relatively close to you, capable of doing you immediate harm, right? You're already in a bad situation if you need the pepper spray, right? Now, does that mean nobody should ever have pepper spray? No, because, you know, you could end up in such a situation. But like, no one lives their life, hopefully, saying they're going to put themselves in that kind of situation and then rely on the pepper spray. That's kind of stupid, right? So the view is like this. Should a person have within them a sense that punishment is divine punishment is real? Sure. Should they be able to, to arouse that if they need it? Sure. But is that the way they should be approaching life? No. no. But sometimes a person is really in such a low state that they might the only thing stopping them is knowing that it's not gonna it's not gonna end well for them. Okay. But that's not a path to serving Hashem, it's not a path to getting closer. So then we don't talk about it in Chsidis. That's the end of fear of punishment. Good? Okay. Now does everyone agree with this approach? That fear of punishment should be treated like pepper spray. Everyone Kept in world, everyone, everyone in the um, world of Jewish um, ideology. No, people aren't like that. No. 
Maybe. I like, I, I like avoiding using the word musr because like it means so many different things to different people. See, the, the, the problem with the word musr is that the word musr literally means ethics or guidance. And so therefore, in a strict sense, chassidus is musr. Um, now, if you mean it more technically, then you have to get like, do you mean like the musr movement of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter? Do you mean musr as like the ethical works of the Rishon. Like it's very messy what people mean by Musr. Um, and so I don't like using the word unless I'm going to clarify. Because there are schools of thought in Musr that are all about like how to improve yourself and make yourself a better human being. There's nothing about fear of punishment. And then there's definitely like a school of thought that like the way to get people in line is to you know, put the fear of God into them. By fear of God, they mean the fear of punishment. Which a lot of people do. That's true. So, so this is one of the things that made Hasidus controversial. And the Baal Shem Tov was very opposed to the whole idea of fear of punishment and the Alter um, and also, and uh, one of the one of the tensions I should say between the religious world and the Hasidic world is this issue because from a pr perspective of being religious of being orthodox, fear of punishment is great. Because think about it, right? What's a more effective way of guaranteeing compliance? Developing a personal sense of relationship with God or being afraid that if you don't obey God's commands, you're going to, your life is going to be miserable, either this world or the afterworld? For well, most people, it's being afraid. Yeah, it's more effective. It's for sure more effective. Right? In general, fear is a much fear, and I mean here, fear of punishment is a much more effective motivation for anything. But it's a short term. It's not necessarily a short term. You can't go the rest of your life in fear. Sure, you can. See, the thing is like this: many people in the modern world, the fear of punishment doesn't work because they just they're able to stop believing that the punishment is real. But if you if 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 that's if you really do feel that the punishment is real, right? Then fear of punishment. What, what people people there's whole countries for generations that live in fear, right? Communist Russia, North Korea, and they all work because everybody is afraid. As long as the threat is real to you, fear is the most effective way of gaining compliance. So if your goal in life is to make sure that you want as many people doing, as, and many Jews keeping as many mitzvahs and not doing as many sins as possible, right? Then what kind of, an, of, a, of, of a society do you want where everyone believes quite clearly that God is real and God has a very big stick and if you don't behave, he will beat you with it. And if... Okay, but it's effective. It's effective. As long, again, as long as the, you feel that the threat is real, it's very effective. It's not short-term. Chassidus' right. objection to fear of punishment is not that it's not effective. Is that it's counterproductive. That's not the point. The point is not to cow people into observing mitzvahs. The point is for people to be close to Hashem, which happens through mitzvahs. Right? So to make a whole society or a whole life centered around something which separates a person from Hashem is the opposite of what God intends. So it's not a, it's not a matter of effectiveness or not effectiveness. It's, fear of punishment is very effective for what it's designed to do. The question is, is that the thing that we're supposed to have? 
We're supposed to maximize mitzvah compliance at the cost of closeness to Hashem? And the Chassidah says, no. And there are other ideologies that say, yeah, like at the end of the day, closeness to God is like a nice bonus if you get it, but at the end of the day, that's not what matters. What matters is, are you compliant with the will of God or not? That's all that matters. Is it Chassidus in general or Chabad? It's Chassidus in general. Um, now, there are differing schools of thought in Chassidus about how much Chassidus everybody should have. So there were some Hasidic schools of thought that felt that people should only have a little, they should have like regular orthodoxy with a tiny little sprinkling of Hasidus. And then there are Hasidic groups that had the view that Hasidus is for everybody, all Hasidus, only Hasidus, nothing but Hasidus. That would be Chabad's approach. But so there are different opinions. Isn't that elite? Explain. Uh, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a fair thing to do. Like, is that elite? Don't explain. It's like, just leave that hanging there with the heaviness in the air. What? I think I do feel like it could be a little bit short sighted because there's so much more out there than just this approach. Oh. So. And all of them are like actual ways of connecting to God. Well, so. I'm so convinced that I'm right, but like, what if I come to a Shia? <laughs> so, so okay. The, 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 there's, there's. There's a difference between there's a difference between a question of who's right. I know we're not right. It's all a different way of interpreting. No, 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 no. no. There's, that's just there's a different kind of question. What I mean to say is like this, okay? There are some things which are not legitimate debates. And when I mean they're not legitimate debates, it means you can disagree. It's fine to disagree. It's just you can't debate it because your starting premises have nothing in common. Okay. If, a person, if a person fundamentally, his conception of what a marriage is, is um, a man having uh, a woman to run his house, right? father his children, right? Like, that's fundamentally what a marriage is. Right? So, like, the mission of a man acquires a woman, it means it quite literally, right? You know, you need, like, a, you need a horse to, like, pull the wagon, you need a wife to have children and to cook, and so, like, you know, that's just the way it is. Like, that's, like, his attitude fundamentally to what a marriage is. Okay? And he goes to a class on how to have a good marriage. And in the class, it speaks about the importance of speaking with your wife and figuring out where you can find some sort of level of mutual understanding even though you have differences of opinion. What would he conclude? That that's an effective strategy or, or not an effective strategy? Not an effective strategy. Why? What? That's not the goal, right? So you can't debate the effect. Like, so never the, but, and then the lecturer's going to say, but you don't understand. Like when you talk and you work things out and you, you understand each other, you come closer, it's like, you're not convinced. Like, that... That's not, that, that's not the point. I don't care if you become closer. That, that wasn't the issue. Okay? If something is fundamentally, this is my objective, this is my goal, then, and someone else has a different fundamental goal, then you can't argue about what's more effective, what's more, right? It's just you're coming from different places. Right? My question is about effectiveness, though. One second, one second, one second, one second. I, I want to I make sure that what I was saying is clear, though, okay? 
I am not talking about right now about a particular set of practices or techniques or even books. What I'm saying is a matter of underlying perspective. Okay. So there were, um, there was a view of certain people um, that the idea that a person should have a relationship with God is something that should be relatively, it's relatively speaking, off limits to most people. There's such a like that. That's why, very simply, because the minute you make having a relationship with Hashem, now you're starting to open up the risk of like people are going to have their ups and their downs. Whereas if you have a strict orthodoxy, there's God. God created the world. He runs the world. You play by His rules, it'll be good for you. You don't play by His rules, things are going to be bad for you. People keep in the same line. Is now, and and that's and that's what's important. If, if like one second, if, one second, if you go offline, then uh, there's going to be problems for you. If that's the person's underlying perspective on things, right? Then, they're go- then, 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 then no amount of arguing about um, this approach to chassidus or that approach to chassidus, right? And then there were other people who say differently. Other people say differently. No, fundamentally, it's about being close to Hashem. And if it's fundamentally about being close to Hashem, then there's no room in such a thing to make a society around fear. And to make a life that stems around fear, maybe you need to have that as like you know last resort, the, the mace in the bottom of your purse or something. But like, there's no place to make that the, the atmosphere in which people live. It's just that, that that's that's in essence wrong. Okay, now, so when I said about Chabad, I'm talking about that attitude, not in terms of like you know books or things like that. That from the perspective the perspective of Chabad is very that if it's about a relationship with Hashem, then you can't like that can't be like a little additional thing. That's the thing. The thing is we're trying to be closer to Hashem. And does that carry a risk? Sure, it carries a risk. All relationships carry risks. Something built around fear is less risky, 100%. It's, it's less risky to have a society built around fear. But that's not the point. There are so many schools of thought besides being fear and like, just like, the way that... Like, yeah, but I'm, I'm just talking about this one axis. I'm talking about this one axis. So my question is, though, it seems that like everything is well, like this is the main everything. Mm-hmm. Why is that the case? Because there are so many other things that kind of fall in line with that. Like, other thoughts, other areas, whatever that aren't really explored very much. I, I don't think that we're uh, communicating properly. I'm not talking about anything other than an underlying value. So I don't think what else is there. I mean, like there are other areas also that are necessarily what you were saying, like this very yeah, fine. But I'm talking on this specific issue. If you're talking about this specific issue, the question is like this. By the way, Musar also, and this is not, not because of so much of a relationship with Hashem, but for other reasons, like Rabbi Salanter's Musar approach, also had the same objection to, to a society based on fear, but for different reasons. Okay. But my, my point... My, my, my point is, is that there's an underlying um, sense of what it's all about. If your underlying sense of all it's all about is God gave the Torah and the ultimate goal is to preserve orthodoxy at all costs, then fear is the way to go. If your underlying sense is that it's about, it's really about closeness and relationship with Hashem, then that's, fear is not the way to go. Fear of punishment I'm talking about. Okay. You want to say there's like a third view? Okay, the third view, we can also talk about that. But 
on this specific issue. So when someone asks, like, what's Chabad's approach? Chabad's approach was that if it's really about a relationship with Hashem, then, like, you can't, like, hide that away from people. Like, that's the truth. And yes, and that's a risky, and that's dangerous, and people will slip up, and people are going to be a lot more themselves, and people's individuality will come out, and it's a problem, and we have to mess with it. Yeah, okay, fine. And there was a view that said, like, none of that is worth it because closeness to Hashem is not the point. The point is strict orthodoxy. Okay? Um, if you want to throw in, if you want to make the picture more complete, there was, there was an idea that Rabbi Sol Salanta had about human perfection. And he had a similar argument, not about closeness to Hashem, that if the goal of Judaism is human perfection, a society based on fear keeps everybody repressed. So you can't do that either. But as what I'm saying is like there's a, there, there's things that, that it's not about it's about an underlying sense. What is the point? And if and if your underlying point is your underlying point your underlying goal is fundamentally different, you can't then argue about whether it should be this way or whether it should be that way because you're just, there's, there's no common ground in which to have the argument. It's one of the things that people just have to agree to disagree or wait till the other person's experience in life changes. You get what I'm saying? Right. I'm not saying that the view of Chabad is that you're not allowed to learn any other books. That was not what I was saying at all. Okay, yeah. Is it fair for like the community to have the, like, the way they go about things is like fear of God, to so, like just like rules that says it's like black and white, mm-hmm. but then they take from Chassidus only what they want? Is it fair? Yeah, like, like, how can that work? Like we get all these terms in Yeshiva that aren't Chabad and then they well, have more of like a well, Mosar approach, but then they take Chassidus, the parts of Chassidus that they want and well, interpret that Well, I think I'm going to not answer your question, but I'm going to answer the question you didn't ask instead mm-hmm. because it's my teacher's prerogative to do that. Which is... Can you really make a society based on relationships at all? Because if you have a society based on fear, then like that creates a norm and everyone falls in line. But if it's based on relationships, right? That means that everybody's own individual integrity, everyone's own individual feeling, like that's what they need in order to function. And we all know that people like have ups and downs and not everyone's on the same page, right? So imagine you had a yeshiva or a seminary or a shul or a school or a town. I don't care what it is, yeah? And in that town, there's no concept of fear of punishment at all. Everything is just about your relationship with God. How would that function? It would not function at all. Why not? Can you, can you think of a single institution that works like an institution, like a group of people functioning in some sort of organized way where fear of punishment is not the structure that's used. It's like kids with their parents. There's fear of punishment as well, so sometimes you have to listen. But there's a relationship. So okay, let's talk really, let's talk about I think, I think my Montessori school, there's no punishment. We don't have punishment here. We're older. Okay. So, 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 the, so, so, the, so, so the answer is like this. The answer is like this. So the answer is like this. There is an institution that works without fear of punishment, which is a family. Now, I'm not saying families don't have punishment. What I'm saying is that 
that plenty of families could function just fine without having punishment. Let's leave little, little children out of the picture right now because that's a different thing, okay? Little children aren't capable of like governing themselves. Okay? And so there's a question about punishment. But for instance, if you've got a family, right? You've got some you know, you know, mother and fathers and aunts and uncles and, 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 um, and, 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 and teenage children, right? and they're all living together, right? Like back in the day in the village, right? Like, if the relationships are, are, are genuine and strong enough, right, the family dynamics are there, that holds them together and people function that way, okay? The problem is you can't institutionalize that in the sense you can't, like, come now to a bunch of people that don't feel that way of being connected to each other, that kind of family dynamic, right, and then expect people to comply by some sort of sets of rules because we're, like, also supposed to get along. That doesn't work, Okay. Um, which is why many things that work on the small scale that make you bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, what ends up happening is that they don't work, right? Because if you get a bunch of people together that are self-selecting and they like each other and they share some values, they can develop a family-like dynamic, right? So that might be why MyNote works, right? But what happens if there were, say, 300 students in MyNote? You'd see how that would be much more difficult to do? Yeah. Okay. Right? How many students are there in a Montessori class? What's the teacher-to-student ratio? Let's actually do that. That's a better one. What? What's Montessori? Montessori is a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a method of, of educating kids. It's about two, two teachers to 18 students. That means... That's like the least. Usually they'll try and get more. Okay. So now, most of us did not go to Montessori schools. Okay. How many students were there in third grade? One teacher. How many kids were in the class? 25. 30. Okay. So you, like you're seeing that there's, like, there's a reason why you have to adjust the ratios, right? See what I'm saying? There's, there's something about when you're relating to each other um, individually, you can then build relationships, and those relationships actually can, can, can make something function. Okay. So here's the thing. Chesedis, and I think Chesedis... One of the things that Chassidus tries to in, engender in, in, in everybody um, is the idea that we're not just supposed to have a relationship with Hashem, but we're supposed to love every single Jew. So now, let's imagine, let's imagine we had a school of 300 students, right? That all love each other. Let's even say the students don't all love each other, okay? But let's say all the teachers and the, all the principals and all the administrators and all the secretaries felt about each one of those 300 students as the same way that they would feel about their own daughter or niece or whatever. Then do you think that could work? In fact, the way those people then feel about the students that if, like you spoke about last week, how love engenders love? Okay, so, so when the Hasidus envisions, like it's all Hasidus all the time for society, is because Hasidus envisions that you're actually good. Like, if, if, if I'm going to have Abish Yisrael in a genuine way, and then you're going to have Abish Yisrael, you're going to have Abish Yisrael. But what happens? What happens if... We, we take the chassidus and we don't actually live up to it personally, and then we try and build a school or a shul. Then what ends up happening? And we want the thing to function, right? We don't want it to collapse. Then we, stick in the fear. then we stick in the fear. So what ends up happening, it's not an issue of Chabad versus not Chabad. Even if there's a plenty of Chabad institutions that end up becoming fear-based. Because the only way chassidus works in, in, in this kind of large-scale thing is if you actually feel the love, right? If I actually care about each one of you, right? right. Then, then, then when I interact with you that way, it changes the dynamic. We don't need to set up. Right. Right. So the teacher training would just be love every day. Right now, 
love does not always manifest in, in cute cuddliness, right? But, right, um, and, and the, the, the previous Rebbe, he wrote something about education. He wrote a few things. One of the things he writes about education is that, is that if you're educating someone, one of the most important things is that the person being educated feels a, um, a, um, a sense that, that the educator cares about them, genuinely. Otherwise, it's not real education. And if you think about it, like, you know, now you go back and you think like, okay, which shoals are really, really effective shoals are not shoals that have like a really strong board and throw out everybody who like doesn't behave, right? The really strong shoals, really strong communities are like communities where like the rabbi really cares about people. There's like, there's, there's, you know, when someone it doesn't fit exactly, they still feel that people are interested in them and care about them. And so this idea that it's all based on love is, is something that you can't, it's not a matter of like in Chabad, not in Chabad. It's a question of, do I take this idea about connecting to someone else, connecting to Hashem, connecting to another person, and I say, this is really the foundation, this is really what I'm trying to build everything around, and really do that? Or do I want to have like a regular school or institution or whatever, and then this is my ideology? Because the minute it becomes an ideology, it doesn't work. The Altar said this, that chassidus can't be an ideology, it doesn't work. I can't, like you can't have a family around ideology. Family is around the fact that like I care about my family members, they care about me, and we try to live together and get along together, right? So, I, I don't know if that directly answers your question, but I think... And also, like, would it like become not like fear of punishment, but rather fear of disappointment? Uh, we're going to get to that. There is room for fear in, in Chassidus. Just fear of punishment is not okay? Well, I just have a question like um, So, even in a place where you do have all the and basically it's not based on fear, you still run, you still have the risk in a sense because you're underlying things yeah. There's still a risk. But the thing is, what make, in other words, the thing that, that the, the, the Tzemach Tzadik, the third Chabad Rebbe, he wanted to leave Russia and go to Eretz Yisrael. And so his son asked him, How can you leave? There's all the chassidim. There's hundreds of thousands of chassidim. How can you just leave? And Tzemach said, Yisrael of the chassidim will keep them going. Now, that's a very like, cute thing to say, right? Okay, um, but what does one thing have to do with the other? Why, if the, why if the Rebbe leaves, the Avsisol keeps the Chassidim going? That's like if like we're out of milk, and you say, okay, we're out of milk, but at least electricity's working, like very nice. But I was telling you, we're out of milk. Like, what does one thing have to do with the other? If you go all the way back to the Baal Shem Tov, what's like one of the main things that that, that a, a Chassidic Rebbe is supposed to be doing, contributing? Right, and not just that he has obviously so towards the chassidim, but his engenders in the chassidim obviously so towards each other. So that's what I'm saying. Well, well, if I've been succeeded in instilling that chassidus, they don't mind my, my physical presence here. Then they have they have me without me being here. That was his point. Okay, so th- th- this idea that that it's about the love and it's about the connection and not about the fear. It really does, it's, it's, it's a different thing. And the truth of the matter is, even in Chabad and even amongst Chassidim, that's a struggle. Because it's much easier and it's much, quote unquote, safer and you get much more compliance if you don't make it dependent on relationship, right? If you have a school where you have rules and you have a dress code and you have consequences, everything's laid out with a policy, it's much smoother, it's much clearer, right? It's also much less personal. And in the broad sense, it's effective. Okay, you, you have people that fall along the wayside and fall along the wayside there. 
Whereas if you really make it about like, I care about you and you care about me and together we're gonna try to make this work, it's a very different thing. Okay, now. The, remember we learned that the love is the root of the 248 positive commandments? Okay. One of the mitzvahs in the Torah is as Hashem Kechatira. Hashem your God you should fear. Is that a positive mitzvah or a negative mitzvah? It is a positive mitzvah. And if love is the source of the 248 positive mitzvahs, what does that mean? Love is the source of fearing Hashem. Now, it clearly, if we understand that love is the source of fear, the mitzvah of fear, and love of Hashem doesn't bring you to fear of punishment, then the kind of fear that we're talking about that's really feeling the mitzvah of fearing Hashem is not really fear of punishment. Okay? In other words, if a person never experiences fear of punishment once in their life, they didn't do anything wrong. Because, like, again, it's like if, if you live your whole life and you never take the mace out to spray somebody who's, like, you know, being aggressive against you, like, that's fine. Like, you never got to that situation. That's good. Right? But if a person says, I never had once year of Hashem, and everyone's a year of Shemaim, that's a problem. It's a mitzvah of year. So clearly that year is not fear of punishment. Okay? Yes, in relationships, there's fear. I'm going to talk about the fear, but the fear stems from the love. So going back to the thing we spoke about before, I told you that the whole time is based on love. Even here we see that. Even though we're saying there's love and there's fear, but if love is the source of the positive mitzvahs, and fear is one of the positive mitzvahs, it turns out love is the source of all the mitzvahs indirectly. Okay? Make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, there are many kinds of fear mentioned in Tanya. Here, broadly speaking, we have two. Um, we're going to start with the first one. Well, here, I mean, frankly, probably both ways pretty bold of Yura Tata, but, but I, it's an interesting discussion about the commentaries in Tanya about how to line this up with Yura Tata and Yuri Law. We'll just do what it says here. Okay. So the first fear I mentioned is fearing to rebel against the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. So that's the first fear. Now, what, what does it mean to fear to rebel? You're afraid to rebel. First off, Let's define rebellion, right? Because that, that would be an important thing, right? What, what would you say makes a, something a rebellious act? Going against the system. Going, going against? The system. No. 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 Okay, it has to be purposeful. The purposeful and going against, those two we're going to take. But I object to your use of the word system. Why? What, what, what's my problem? Why don't I like the word system? No, I, I, I'm going to actually argue the opposite. That you're, you can't really rebel against the system. What's a system? What's a system? A system is a collective fiction, right? Okay, you can't rebel against the system. Or, so going against, that's part of rebellion, and it's purposeful, right? You're, you, are, right? you are intentionally going against, right? You're not going against, you, just, you happened to, by mistake, didn't realize. That's not rebelling. Okay, so intentionally going against what is rebelling? Oh. No, you can't rebel. What? Going against what you're supposed to be doing. What are you supposed to be doing? Okay. Now, it depends on what situation you're in. 
So, the way Hasidus understands rebelling is again in the context that, re- that you rebel against someone, it's a relation that against something. Let me put it to you like this. If somebody grows up, okay, in a particular culture, um, and in this culture, I don't know, like, let's say, they don't eat fish on Tuesdays. I'm making up some ridiculous thing, okay? They don't eat fish on Tuesdays. And this person decides he really wants to eat fish on Tuesday. Yeah? And so they go and eat the fish on Tuesday anyway. They don't care that you're not supposed to eat fish on Tuesday. Yeah. What, what, uh, what, what's, where, where's the, where's the problem? They grew up in a society. No one eats fish on Tuesday. Because it's not allowed, or because that's just a that's like a, it's a social norm. It's a social norm. It's like it's really considered like improper, bad. And there's like I don't care. I want to eat fish. I'm gonna eat it on Tuesday. By whom? Told by whom? Expectation, really. Who? The Norm, your society. Going against what everyone else is doing. Okay, this is, this is very tragic. You are told by someone, your mother, your father, your teacher, your neighbor, someone, right? People, actual people that you have relationships with, right? And so what's happening, and or it's happening, even if there's, even if it's not the biggest deal in the world, what's happening is there are people who have actual people in your lives who have certain expectations of you, have certain desires for how you ought to behave, right? And now you're going against that. What does that do to those relationships? What? It weakens them. Very good. Right? See, here's the thing. Like, if you live in a big city and everybody's anonymous, like, do what you want. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares. But if you, but it, but, and I'm not saying I'm not saying you have to do exactly everything that you grew up doing. That's not what I'm saying. But the the the, the negativity and the going against is your, is there someone else in your life who's not going to disappear? They're not some random stranger you've never seen before, right? You have a connection with them. They genuinely think you ought to do something, right? They genuinely think there's a right way to live, right? And you're going against that. Not you mistake. You ate fish and you forgot it was Tuesday. No. Like, I don't care, I'm gonna eat the fish. Why? Because I like fish. The fact that you think it's wrong is your problem. That creates a cleavage in the relationship. That means the end of the world, it doesn't mean it's, you know, but but that creates a cleavage, creates tension. This is why, you know, if you, if you, there was a guy who became a Baltruva and his son fried out. His son's no longer religious. And his father was very upset. And his father said, like, why did you leave? And he says, I did what you did. So what do you mean what I did? I left secular society and became a God-fearing man. You did the opposite. He says, no, no, no. You abandoned the way you were brought up because of doing what you wanted to do. So I abandoned the way I was brought up to do what I want to do. <laughs> Same thing. Right? It, it, there's a real dynamic, right? That the, the tension of, like, there's someone else in my life. They have a set of values. They have a set of expectations. They have a set of what they think is right and wrong, Right? And when I disregard that, that creates tension in the relationship. That creates disconnect. Not always insurmountable disconnect. But it's, it's an issue, right? That's, 
Right? What happens when children end up making career choices that their parents don't approve of? So it's, a, it's, not, it's not something that can't be dealt with, but it's, 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 the, the issue of rebelling is that there's someone else who genuinely has some sort of a value, some sort of a will that relates to you, and you're saying that doesn't matter to me, or doesn't matter enough to me. Right? It's funny though, because we're not making a lot of rebellion on the king or something, and I wouldn't say they have like a relationship. Well, when was the last time you were a subject of a king? <laughs> you want to hear something great about kings? Kings have relationships with their subjects. It's just different than the kind of relationship we're used to. Okay. Um, if you have a problem, just to give you an example, if you have a problem, um, would you write a letter to the President of the United States and ask him to help solve your problem or try and make a meeting? Do you think that's even like legitimate? Right? That's something that little kids do, right? But nobody thinks like you're like, like you know the president who who whose solve problems does the president solve like what goes to the president's desk? National problems, right? Yeah, yeah. My my neighbor stole my goat does not make it to the president's desk, right? Okay. There's something called the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Have you heard the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Yeah, okay. So it's a kingdom, like an actual kingdom with a king, like a real king. Um. And the king just can't be everywhere at once. The king has governors. What's the governor? The governor is the shleach of the king. So the governor is essentially, he is the king while the king is not here in that province, right? Okay. And you know what the governors have? I believe it's once a week, might be once every two weeks. They have what's called an audience day. You know what an audience day is? What? Everybody who has any problem on any issue, you can go to the governor, which represents the king, and like, my neighbor stole my goat. You don't have to file a police report. You could do that too, right? But here, like, he's the king. He's the heart of the people. He's the father of the nation. So he cares about everybody's problem, right? There's like the practical limitations of being a person, right? And so there's an idea that in principle that, of course, the king wants, you know, the, the, king, the king is the king of all the subjects. And so the subjects have a problem, they go and they beseech the king, right? We don't have kings anymore. We have bureaucrats. We have systems. Right? We make everything depersonalized. Right? Yeah. In a kingdom, right, with a king, when you join the military, you swear an oath of allegiance to defend what? Kings. In the United States, you swear an oath to defend? Country. A piece of paper called the Constitution. <laughs> it's a little bit different, right? You see what I'm saying? And there's this disconnect, and this is, this is, one, of the, this is one of the things, there was a, there was a mashpia named Chacha Fagan, and when he heard that they killed the Tsar, he cried. And he said, why, when they asked him, like, the Tsar was a big anti-Semite. He said, because now nobody's going to understand what it means that Hashem is a king. I, see, the king is first and foremost, it's a relation. It's a kind of relationship that's different than the relationships we're used to. The relationships we're used to, they're very, um, uh, they're very reciprocal. You know, okay, you can have like, you know, one father, one mother for many children, right? You know, but generally speaking, right? Husband, wife, teacher, students, friends, siblings, right? It's very, it's very, you know, it's not on the one side you have one king and on the other side you have thousands of subjects. And so we tend to depersonalize what that relationship is. But the relationship of a king and the subject is still nonetheless a relationship. And so rebelling against the king is not, is much more like um, disregarding your parents' wishes for you when you make a career or lifestyle decision, then it is like breaking the law. 
you know you, you know there's there's this interesting thing in many countries that they have like the, the president or the governor something called the pardon power you know what the pardon power is okay now why does that thing exist like it's a crazy thing like why should they just get to the, like you were tried in court you were convicted you were found guilty right right why is this person just because you know what I decided we're not gonna we're just gonna throw it out why cuz I can <laughs> where's the justice in that it's completely arbitrary right in the United States, they tried to give, make it more systemic, but in principle, like, the power is the, the president or the governor can pardon whoever they want, for whatever reason they want. Why does that power exist? Anyone know? It's left over from the kings. Because in the context of a king, it makes perfect sense, right? What did David Melch say? That I've sinned against you. So if you sinned against me, I can forgive you. You didn't sin against the, it's not a system, it's not a law, you sinned against me. <laughs> so I decided not to hold it against you, right? It's up to me, right? The king's like, like, you stole something, right? Okay, so by stealing something, you violated our relationship. So if I decide that I want to overlook that violation, I can do so, right? That's where that comes from. What? We really don't get what a king is, it's a, it's a problem. So we're going to, so... Well, that, before we get to the, the king, rebelling is there's someone else has a rutz and they have a will, they have a value that in somehow an, about what they care about and want from me. And in a relationship, like I would take that seriously, right? Now, granted, in other people's relationships, right, there's limitations. How much you know you, other people what they want from you and what want for you, you, you allow to govern your life, right? Fine. But if you just disregard it, then you, that's a breakdown in the relationship. So what does it mean to rebel against Hashem? Yeah, Hashem has a will for you. He has what, what He wants you to be doing, what He feels is important for you to be doing, why you're here, right? A will that relates to you specifically, right? It's not a system. His will relates to you. And what does it mean to rebel? To go against that knowingly. Not I made a mistake, not I, I, I slipped up, but to knowingly sit, to, it, doesn't bother, it doesn't matter to me. Now, why would I be afraid of rebelling? What's going to happen if I rebel? Not again. We're not saying he's going to punish you afterwards. He might, but that's not the point. It's, yeah, it's going to destroy. That's like a fundamental breakdown in the relationship. Use the example of a marriage for a second, yeah? One spouse asks the other spouse to do something. Yeah? Yeah, take out the trash. Right? And the wife asks the husband to take out the trash, and the husband doesn't take out the trash. Okay, happens, right? My oh, man, forget to take out the trash. But now, what message does the wife get about? You don't care about my mom. You don't care about, like, I, like, okay, I asked you to do something, and, you, you, and it wasn't important enough, you forgot. Okay, so he apologizes, I didn't mean, I was slipped my mind, I was busy, okay, fine, right? But now, if the relationship is really important to him, he's like, wait a minute. If I forget, then that shows it's not important. So I want to make sure I don't forget. Why? Because if I don't forget, then she's going to feel slighted. Okay. And I don't want her to feel slighted because that's a breakdown of the relationship. All the more is I certainly I'm not gonna, don't, want, don't, want to get to, don't want to get to a point where I'm just going to blithely disregard what she said because it's inconvenient for me. That's really going to destroy the relationship. 
I don't want to do that. Why? Because the relationship is important. So the love brings to the fear, right? If I love Hashem, I really, really don't want to show disregard to His will. Why? Because that breaks the relationship. Not, not because then what He'll do next to me. Now, but you can only rebel against someone if you, have, if you care about the relationship with them and they actually have a will for you. And there's a, there's a problem. There are teenagers who want to rebel. And they can't. Have you ever encountered this problem? Maybe you've had this problem. There's some teenagers that like to rebel, they would like to rebel and they can't. Because they have very chilled parents. And so their parents like 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna shave half my hair and dye the other half purple. And your parents and the parents are like, okay, that's cool. Whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. It's like, no, react, react, be upset. Because there's what is, where is this going? Like there's, you should want something. Like if you care about me, then you should want something. You should want my life to look like this as opposed to that. Whatever the this and that are. For, for, our, for, the, for our person, it's arbitrary. If I have a relation with someone, if I care about them, then I should have some kind of will. I want life to be like this and not like that. But if whatever I do... You can want someone to feel happy and fulfilled. It doesn't mean that you want their hair to look a certain way. I know that's the, the, that the, the, between your hair looking a certain way, which is really, 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 really arbitrary, and happy for field, which is extremely vague. Real, in, in, people have, people have a, a, a mode of being, a way they are. And so if I, if, if I want, if I want my child um, to live in such a way that they're happy, they're fulfilled, and is, um, compatible with the mode of being that I am. Otherwise, it makes the relationship very difficult. That's just that's that's what it is. That's how people actually are. So, if a person is able to to project the sense like you can do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy, it doesn't affect me. What there's a, there's there's, there's some sense they're mafia the person. They're they're saying like, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. Um, the the Mishnah tells us that someone who says, what's yours is yours. And what's mine is mine. Right? There's different people, right? There's what this person says, what's yours is mine. And what's mine is mine. That's a wicked person, right? Everything's me. My terms, what I want. Okay, that's a wicked person. Someone says, what's yours? What's what's yours is yours, and what's mine is yours. That's a righteous person. Okay. Then there's someone who says, what's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. That's a stupid person. There's no sense of boundaries. What about a person who says, what's yours is yours, and what's mine is mine? So the, it says, it says that's a middle trait, midas abeni, and then it says midas sedoim. It's also that's the trait of the city of Sodom. What was what was? And something in halach is called midas sedoim. Midas sedoim means you do your thing, I'll do my thing. You be happy on your side of the fence, I'll be happy on my side of the fence. Just don't, you know. Live and let live. Live and let live. But you know what? As long as you're not hurting me, I don't care. Do whatever you want. But what does that mean? No one's getting hurt. No one can. But also no one's connected to anybody. Now, the problem is when a teenager feels that that's where parents are coming from. I'm not saying that's where parents always are coming from when that happens. But if the parent's giving off that sense, the, the idea that you want something, so there's, it could be pathetic and silly, like, oh, yeah, I want you to like wear a certain kind of shoe. Like, who cares? But then, no, no, like, if, 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 if you're a person, you have some kinds of values, you have some kinds of things which you think are important, some things you think are really abominable, some things that you think are really noble and worthwhile, and you really want to, you really want your children to be successful and to be happy and to be able to connect. So you want them to be happy and successful in those things which line up with that. 
and yeah, when, when they go against that, that's going to be a problem, and it's going to hurt them, it's going to be difficult, right? And, and so that causes in the child a sense that they would like to, to, to not violate those things somehow. Okay, you know, and hopefully those things are, are broad enough that they allow for the individual of the child to thrive and flourish, fine. But then you have a problem, like when the, when the child's like, there's nothing I can do that gets a reaction. So then what does that mean? There's no one, there, there's no one who actually, again, from their experience, I'm saying that's always the case, right? We can feel one way about one person, that doesn't mean that's how they actually feel about us. But from the child's perspective, it could be like, it doesn't matter what I do, I come home late, I come home early, I do well in school, I don't do well in school, I, I, I dress funny, I dress normal, like nobody, like, as long as I'm not like disturbing my parents' lifestyle, it doesn't matter to them. So there's no, there's no way to rebel. <laughs> Like, being able to rebel means I'm in a relationship with someone who actually wants me to be in a certain way in order for us to, like, get along and be, the, you know, be together in some sense. Okay. Now, because society ultimately really truly is made up of relationships, it's, a real society is made up of not a bunch of autonomous individuals, it's made up of a bunch of relationships, right? right? There's my relationships with my immediate family, my wife and my children, right? Then I have relationships with wider circles, and plus we as a family unit have relationships, and then this we build up a society. And so going against your society is just a way of speaking negative going against other people's will for you, which might be justified, it might be just, not justified. The idea of a king is that everybody has a relationship with this one person, and this one person, their will and their being connected to them is so important that it's a matter of life and death. We don't have such a thing in modern society, so it's very hard to just relate to that. But that's the best analogy for God, right? God is that there's this one relationship that everyone has a relationship with him, and his relationship is so central that like everything else is subservient to that relationship. Okay. So you say like, like modern, like loving everyone and the love of grace is just Yeah. Um, what is it? Uh, a friend of mine who's a, a therapist said that the thing that destroys relationships is tolerance. Because tolerance means that what you're doing doesn't really matter to me. Tolerance is this way, that way, that way. Now, there's a, that, now. It depends on what you're tolerating. No, the, the, there's, a, there, there's something else, which is the ability to, the, there's something else, which is that I can, I'm not tolerating something. I'm, he used a different word. I'm trying to remember the word he used. Not tolerating. I'm what he used. What? Maybe it was accepting. What? No, accept. No, he didn't use accepting. His point was that tolerance very much involves a sense of like not being affected by what's going on. So like I can tolerate it because like if you do this, you don't do this, ultimately like my, my life will be the same either way. So I can tolerate, that's what gives me, that, that, that's what gives me the ability to, to, to bear, to tolerate something like, like, like if you have like an elevator and it can tolerate a certain load, that means like the elevator functions the same way up to a certain point. If it's, at a certain mass, then they start straining the elevator up to that point. The elevator doesn't care how many people, and if it's two people, it's four people, it works the same way. You get to like 20 people, then the elevator can't function anymore. And so there's, a, there's like this kind of like indifference in, in tolerating. His point that in a relationship, there has to be the ability to have two things simultaneously, which is, I really am not okay with what you're doing, 
but that doesn't jeopardize, it doesn't undermine the connection that we have. And so I have to figure a way about incorporating those two different feelings together. Um, in other words, the idea of the, my connection with someone else is deeper than the fact that what they're doing really hurts and bothers me. But it does really hurt and bother me. Because the minute it doesn't really hurt and bother me, again, something, not everything has to hurt and bother you, but if nothing ever hurts and bothers you, then you're basically saying, like, whether they're here, whether they're not here, what they do, what they don't do, they're like, not connected to them. Isn't connection to be something other than what hurts and bothers you, though? Like, why is that the focal point of, like, how you have to connect with someone and what you have to get over? It's not the it's not the focal point, it just is an intrinsic part of how relationships are. In relationships, because as Chazal tells, no two people's minds are the same, you will encounter a point where you are, are not on the same page. Sure. And, and if you're close with each other, that's going to be painful. And so now I'm saying, I'm not, no, I, that is painful and it does bother me. Okay, I'm not willing to destroy a relationship over that. Oh, but my point is, is that my point, my, my point, my, my point is, going back to, is that society, really, really real society, is just a lot of relationships. So when you're saying you have a society based on tolerance, is a society a bunch of autonomized individuals running around with no relationships with other people. If you have a, what? You get what I'm saying? In other words, if I live in, if I live in a place where my, what I do doesn't matter as long as I'm not hurting anybody. And the same is true about everybody else. Then we're all a bunch of like little dots. We're not connected to anybody else. If if I do well, something, if the only things that matter are the things that you do wrong. Then yeah, but I, I don't think that's ever like just like you can do things that are positive that do matter, and people do care. Like. Okay, but if I'm helping, so this is the thing. If you have a society where I'm helping someone else out, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'll presumably, like, I'm more likely to help around the people that I'm more physically closer to, right? Like, so my neighbors than some person, like, five blocks away. Right. Okay, so here's an interesting thing that happens. If you help your neighbor, every time you see your neighbor with a grocery, let's just make this a simple example. Um, you know what happens over time? you start developing a relationship with the person. You get to know them, they get to know you, right? Even though you have a relationship. This is my point. This is, so now it's not like you're just an autonomous individual walking around that happen to live next to the person. Now you have a relationship, right? And there's this whole problem of like old people dying and nobody knows that they died. Do you know why this happens? Because no one has a relationship with them. So like nobody knows they weren't there. Now, obviously, the deeper the relationship, the more the issue of, of, of the violation of the will becomes, it becomes an issue, right? If my relationship with my neighbor is that we're friendly and what's going on with their kids and what's going on with my kids and I help them with their groceries and they lend, right? that's a kind of relationship, right? It's pretty hard to get to the point of rebelling because the expectations of each other are so minimal in that. But as relationships get deeper and deeper, then this becomes more and more of an issue. The deepest relationships, the more sensitive relationships, are the ones where like the slightest things can cause a lot of pain. And so the person values the relationship, they really are conscientious about not wanting to do things that are going to unnecessarily strain that. So really the fact that Shem cares about the cigarettes, because he cares about the That's right. That's, where, that's, that's the idea of rebelling against Hashem. 
is that this relationship really matters to him. He really wants us to get along, and I really don't want to do this, and it's jeopardized that. And therefore, I'm very, very careful about not doing a variance. Nothing to do with the follow-up of what happens if I do an Avera. What's the punishment? Like, that's just not, that's not the mindset. Mm-hmm. All right.